Thank you again for the kind invitation to join you in worship this morning. I'm so grateful for the ministry taking place at Crossway and in the city of Brea in particular. I'm a big fan of both Pastor Steve as well as Pastor Sam. And one of the delights and joys of coming on a Sunday like this to Brea when there are three services back to back that one has to speak for. I love the drive back and forth with Elder Mike. Uh, those are probably the highlights of my day today as well, as well I'm sure this uh, time together. So thank you so much uh, for the time for me to join you this morning. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer first and, uh, and, and begin our message this morning. Lord, we're so grateful to you for loving us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, helping us to identify who we are with you, O Lord, for we belong to you. Thank you for gathering us as your family, as your sons and daughters, so that we may worship you. Lord, we ask that you will uh, open our eyes this morning so that we may be able to see you amidst us as you are being exalted through our praises as well as our prayers and proclamation of your word. Pray that you open our ears, O Lord, that we may hear your voice whispering to us as you speak your wisdom so that we may grow and understand. Pray that you be with us, O Lord, that you open our hearts, that these truths will not just become intellectual exercises for us, but that it may be deeply singed into our hearts and applied to our lives. We thank you, O Lord, and pray this in your Son's name. Amen. The message this morning is titled, uh, A Few Ordinary Men, a takeoff from a movie that was famous a while back. But to reflect upon a time together as brothers and sisters, on the very fact that we live in a time that idolizes success. Many of us have grown up in a culture, both Asian and American, that place a high value on winning and succeeding. And you may note this not only in your own life, but in the life of those who are around you as well. As a silly story, I remember my now eight-year-old son, who was about three and a half when he first started playing soccer, scoring two goals in one match and coming out very proud of himself. And at one point, he turned to me and said, Daddy, I awesome. The second thing he went on to say was, not only that he's awesome, but he said, Daddy, those guys, no good. Now, as a parent, three things ran through my mind. On the one hand, sin runs very deep in this kid, like the evil force in Star Wars. The second thought was, I wish he spoke in complete sentences. Maybe somebody can correct him one of these days. But the third thought that I had was uh, simply this, that as a parent, I was really proud of him not only for scoring two goals, but having the desire to score those goals. As a parent, I know it's sinful, but I reveled in it, and I liked the fact that he was better than the other kids, at least for that match. Now, I mention all that because I, I don't think any of one of us is immune. Maybe it's a male thing, I seriously doubted, that all of us are in this mindset about succeeding and winning. Recently, you may have heard about a story of a Korean-American girl in Virginia who in high school, as she's graduating, forged acceptance letters from Harvard and Stanford to go to schools for most Americans, especially Asian-Americans in particular. And she said because these schools wanted her so bad, offering her money, and when she posted on her own Facebook saying that she wasn't sure where to go, she said Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, actually called her encouraging her to go to Harvard, which was his alma mater. Her decision that was much heralded was that she decided to go to Stanford for the first two years and Harvard for the last two years of her school. Sounds ideal? 
Usually if it is, it's a lie. And what happens here is that she was soon discovered that she had forged these letters, convinced her parents that she was actually going to these schools, and later on had to make a public apology for the kind of lies that she committed. As one of uh, USA Today papers reported, this was a symptom of what it perceived to be South Korea's obsession with degrees and success. My guess is that she's not alone. She's not isolated. The pressure to stand out and succeed is far greater than many of us are willing to admit. Maybe the parents here may remember when Amy Chua, who herself is a professor of law at Yale Law School, wrote The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom, where she mused that the Chinese parenting style is much superior. And when she did so, we cringed at the extreme attitudes and actions of the book, but many parents were left wondering whether they were doing enough for their kids. Because oftentimes, whether we admit it public or not, publicly or not, we accept her premise that academic achievement, Ivy League schools, and prominent and well-paying jobs are all indications of success. Those are really successful people, and those are the pursuits that we ought to have. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that success is bad. I'm not ranting against success, nor am I telling your high school age kids here that mediocrity is good. If you are, it's okay. But I'm not pursuing that, simply. I have nothing against success, but I wrestle on a daily basis with how our cultural norms affect our faith and the practice of our faith. While these standards of success may be well and good in society, and my guess is that there are serious doubts that they actually do any good, I wonder if such notions of successes have infiltrated the way we think about our own faith and the way we do church on a regular basis. I'm left wondering about these questions, therefore, that I want to discuss with you. On the one hand, based upon our text, what is a quote-unquote successful Christian? And two, who determines that someone is actually successful? Those are the questions I want to ask and explore this morning. But in order for us to do so, we need to understand the church in Corinth and the Corinthian situation. What prevailed in the church and what seems to come through in the writing of 1 and 2 Corinthians is that there is disunity within the church. The reason for disunity were multiple, but there are a few that we can point to right now. One was about power and wealth. Everyone loves power and wealth. It was interesting. My family traveled to Thailand and Korea for the last three weeks or so, just coming back last Saturday. And Korean Air is the airline we chose to fly. And one time, as we were getting off one of five flights we were on, this one time we actually had to walk by first class uh, 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 area. And for the first time, our kids who flew economy all their lives as well as their parents, saw fully reclining seats, as well as 20-inch screen uh, and, uh, right in front of them. Amazed, my 10 and 8-year-old turned to me and said, what is that? My son, my daughter, that's a first-class seat. And their reply was, I want that. Well, I said, when you grow up and become rich and not a pastor, then you can pay for my tickets, is what I told them. To which my son, who is really selfish, said, no, it's too expensive, daddy. It's only for me. <laughs> so here, we have this notion of power and wealth that you and I recognize very well. 
That is, as a port city, the city of Corinth was a place where it attracted many traders, entrepreneurs, and sailors. It was a place where one can make big bucks, something not unlike Southern California in the minds of many. And there, becoming somebody was the most important pursuit of daily lives. It's called a patronage system. The patronage system is almost like the Italian mafia depicted in the Godfather series, where it's about whom you know rather than what you're able to do on your own. The person who, whom you know, who's a benefactor of your life, provided clients with money, contacts, and inclusion. And in return, the recipients were expected to be loyal to their benefactors, promote their reputation for honor, and play this endless game of carefully calibrated self-promotion. For those of us who work in the workplace, this carefully calibrated self-promotion you and I know quite well. But in this, what's interesting here is that because it was a city where becoming somebody was the most important pursuit, as, as one of the scholars says, uh, Corinth became a magnet for the socially ambitious, for status-hungry people. What's funny about that is the fact that it influenced the church. It's not just about individuals living with this kind of pursuit, but such pursuits and priorities really change the mindset about how one practices one's faith and how one becomes a Christian in a church. Social pressures were immense. And for the immature Corinthian believers, these pressures were shaping them. The way they viewed their faith and the way they, they viewed the church were based upon the priorities and preferences of the world around them. This is why the apostle concerned for the church addresses them in such strong and harsh ways in some ways. Where a church full of people who are hungry to impress others and climb up a little higher on the social ladder here, that's not a church that will be characterized by deep spiritual maturity and unity, and the Corinthian church was certainly not. Like a tree that looks good on the outside, but rotting on the inside, only to be discovered when the wind blows hard, the church in Corinth looked good on the outside, but was rotting away internally. And I wonder how many of the believers then and now look good on the outside, but were rotting on the inside. Because you know, brothers and sisters, it's easy to fake being a good Christian. There are certain Christianese we have to use Yes, God is so good all the time. We have to do certain things that are requirements. You know what? I had this wonderful quiet time. And why is it everyone who goes on a short-term mission trip come back and act as if the whole world has changed around them only to be changed back to their normal ways two weeks later on, right? It's easy for us to counterfeit Christianity on the outside, to act as if we love other people, but not actually love. That's the characteristic of my family. My wife used to work for Olive Crest. She's a social worker, ironically enough. And so she actually loves and cares for people. I, as a pastor, only pretend, right? There are a lot of things that you and I do on a regular basis where we, on the outside, there's an inconsistency between what we do and who we are. And there's a Bible word for that. It's called hypocrisy. 
And what's intriguing for many of us is that what was happening in the Corinthian church is not uncommon in our present day church as well. It affected the way they view the church, it affected the way they view their faith, and it affected the way they view the leadership of the church. In fact, part of the controversy that surrounds chapter four in 1 Corinthians is the fact that many were arguing saying, I like this leader more than other leaders. Some followed Apollos because he was very polished. He looked good and he, was, he used big words when he spoke. Some said, I like Cephas, why? Because he was experienced. After all, he lived with Jesus. And then they questioned, who is this Paul? Admittedly, that he was a small-statured man, didn't look good to the eye, and not only that, he was a meek speaker is what scripture says. And this is not a point that the Corinthians raise. Paul himself admits this. They already prejudged him by the way he looks. By the standards of the world, they judged him, and they basically determined him to be of no worth. While other guys who look good on the outside are the worthy ones for our consideration. And to individuals like this at the Corinthian church, whose perspective and preferences are determined by worldly standards, and not according to scripture, Paul says this about leaders in the church and how we should view our Christian life in chapter four, verse one. This is how one should regard us. How should we regard them? As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, he introduces to us to two images, two metaphors, we call them. One is a servant, another a steward. Now, much can be said about these individual metaphors. We can say that the word servant often means an assistant, a junior officer. In a family, your sons and daughters, you can order around, right, to do things. I, I have high school and youth group kids here, I realize. Have you ever heard of a TV with no remote control? There was a time, not too long ago, where there's this TV, right? And you didn't have this clicker. What you had were these dials. And you had to turn the dials both for volume and what channel you are. And usually you had about four choices. And because you didn't want to get up, you made your siblings or your kids get up and turn the dials because you didn't have this uh, a remote control that you're working off of. Now, I don't know if you understand what that means. I don't think you can even imagine it, but there are some parents here who, whom I know remember those days. That's what a servant was. Someone who did what somebody else told them to do. We can also point out that stewards usually imply someone who manages a household or even an estate manager, someone who handles the money and the affairs of the household. However, Instead of getting into these images and metaphors, we want to focus on two implications if you and I and Paul and others in the Corinthian church are called servants and stewards, what does that mean for our Christian faith? Because those images are chosen specifically to remind us that we are people who live in dependence and we are people who live under authority. Those are the two things we ought to remember, that we are people who live in dependence and that we are people who live under authority. Living in dependence is not something any one of us desires in our century. I think part of this and as you know, many preachers preach to themselves in, in terms of the topics and the way they discuss the topics to begin with. But one of the struggles I have is that as I age, I, I come to recognize I'm becoming much more needy and dependent. 
As we were traveling, I don't know what I would have done without my kids and my wife, but in particular, I've come to notice that I've become a softy. That is, when I was dating, I would reach over to my wife to touch her eyes to see whether she's crying when we're watching a sad movie. Now, 12 years later, now that I've passed my 40-year mark, she reaches over to my eyes to see whether I'm crying whether we're watch- when we're watching a sad movie. This pe- just past week, we saw a movie called Ode to My Father, which was a movie that was meant for my parents' generation of immigrants. And for two hours and 15 minutes, I was crying the whole time. I just couldn't. I mean, just thinking about it just makes me want to cry. Uh, and, and Sharon did not shed a tear. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable watching the dis- that, uh, what's that change that occurred in our lives. Maybe just because I'm older. Maybe it's just because I'm getting softer in life. But one thing that resonates with me as I read this text is that Paul reminds all the leaders of the church and the Christians in Corinth that their authority of their lives was not of their own making. Their authority was merely given to them. No doubt that they were in positions of some authority. They were no ordinary servants, but servants of Christ. And of course, they were entrusted with something so precious, the mysteries of God. But make no mistake, the authority they possessed was given to them. Paul was not an independent guru or an extraordinarily gifted leader, but a servant whose authority was delegated to him by his master, Jesus Christ. As servants, they had no right of self-determination, but they were given a task by the master. Paul speaks of one specific responsibility he possesses, which to be a caretaker and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to speak briefly about this mystery where chapter 2 and 7 in 1 Corinthians remind us that we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That is, Paul is not saying that the gospel is mysterious, but reminding this Corinthian generation, the mystery and wisdom-seeking Corinthians, that the real mystery is God's plan of salvation that was hidden in the ages past, but was now revealed in the coming, the living, the dying, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, God already had a plan for your sinfulness and my sinfulness. And this plan, not immediately revealed to all, was now declared yours to possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, in an age seeking wisdom, this is the revelation of God's wisdom preached by Paul, simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he and other believers are caretakers of this mystery. You and I not only belong to God because of this mystery, you and I have become servants and stewards of this mystery. And as stewards and servants, we are people who are told what to do. We live in dependence upon another. Friends, the world keeps saying That idea of maturity is dependent upon independence. We are told this when we see the Nike commercial saying, just do it. Or when we see Home Depot commercials saying, you can do it, we can help. 
This notion that every time you hit a milestone of independence, that is, when you can tie your shoes for the first time, ride your bike for the first time, when you drive your car, go off to college on your own, find a girl or a guy and get married and have children of your own, these are all markers of independence, which indicates that these individuals are maturity, is what the world says. Ironically, however, Scripture goes counter to that notion. Scripture doesn't say independence is a marker for maturity. Scripture instead says dependence is the marker for maturity. The more you age, every decade that passes, you become more aware of the fact that your abilities are limited, your wisdom is limited, your physical strength is limited, that indeed the only way you can carry on until the day you meet Jesus Christ face-to-face is the strength and wisdom that comes from the Lord. It's not by a surprise that as people age, they pray more. It's not because they have more time, brothers and sisters. They have less time. They're busier. But they pray more because essentially, apart from it, they have no wisdom and strength to carry on. And Scripture goes counter to the world's wisdom in this. That instead of independence... But dependence is the marker for one's maturity. And here, I am echoing what Paul says to you in saying that as stewards and servants, your Christian life should be marked by this growing dependence upon the Lord. Not a self-exaltation, not self-sufficiency, not self-dependence, but dependence utterly and wholly upon the Lord, who is the only source of good, grace, strength, and wisdom. But it's not the only marker of mature Christian. The second is to be reminded, as Paul is reminding us, that we ought to be people who live under authority. That he possesses delegated authority grounds Paul's point here where Paul and his fellow apostles are servants and stewards possessing not authority of their own, but authority coming from to them from another, which raises two simple questions. First is to whom are they accountable? And then two, on what basis will they be judged? That is, what are they entrusted with and how should they carry themselves? Well, friends, the basis of judgment according to Paul in his own life and the life of many who are gathered here is found in verse two, where he says, moreover, it is required of stewards, that is you and I, that they be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. Not eloquence. Not wisdom, not one's presence and strength, not one's degrees, not leadership, not success, but simply trustworthiness. Are you trustworthy? You know, if it were about our gift sets and how accomplished we are, all of us are in trouble. I know that you guys are very accomplished folks here, but as the old saying in Asia used to be, when there's a person who crawls, there's a person who walks. When there's a person who walks, there's a person who runs. There's a person who runs, there's a person who flies. Is the notion often given saying there's an endless limit of accomplishments that one can gain. If the Lord, as the world sees it, judges us by our resume, then we're in a lot of trouble. I remember um, 
when I was in college, I used to, I, I played a little guitar and uh, there was a time where we needed to put together a praise team. For, for those of you who go to seminary, you know everyone who went to seminary plays guitar. And uh, they decided because I was a sophomore and I was bigger in stature, as you can tell, they put me at lead guitar and they put this guy named David, who's smaller in stature, but more gifted musically as second guitar because he was a freshman. After two or three months, everyone noticed that he was a much better guitarist than I was. And so they approached me and said, Joel, I, yeah, I know you can do this. It, hey, do you mind letting David use his gifts well by being lead guitar? And can you be second guitar? I said, oh, perfectly fine. I'll do it. After two or three months, he realized that there are many others who can play guitar much better than I did. So they approached me and said, hey, Joel, can you, can you let others exercise their musical gifts by playing the guitar? And can you be one of the vocalists? No problem. I was a vocalist for about two or three months, singing my heart out when they approached me again because they re realized there are others who are better singers than I was. They said, Joel, um, thank you for serving us this way for so long, but can you let others exercise their gifts and can you do our transparencies? <laughs> Children, you don't know what transparencies are, I know. Um, this. Young people sit there with computers and flick their fingers just to uh, advance the slides. To do Ministry of Lights with overhead projectors, where you had to take the uh, transparency and if you want it to move up, you have to move down. If you have to move right, you have to move left. Everything is reverse of what you actually knew. And so you may think, well, that's nothing, but to me it was a ministry. And I, I try to be as faithful as I can in that ministry taking place. Now, the reason I tell you that story, which was actually real, was simply to point out, it were it up to giftedness of the individual. You and I have no standing before God. Trust me, there are smarter people, there are better looking people, there are faster people, there are individuals who are richer than you are. I guarantee it. But what scripture reminds us is that it's not about eloquence, wisdom, wealth, or any other things like it. He simply says, be found trustworthy with whatever you have. The word rendered trustworthy here is often translated faithful. It speaks of the servant's faithfulness to the wishes and desires of the master and trustworthiness in his administration of the given task. That is, whatever gifts and blessings the Lord has provided in your daily living, hourly, minute by minute, second by second, are you faithful to the Lord? To this generation who suffer from spiritual amnesia, where they forget about the Lord every single possible moment, are you, not, are you somewhat like me, having seen the blessings of the Lord in my life, the next day if something goes wrong, I forget completely about the Lord's blessings. Despite even the occupation that I have, which is that the Lord has provided a place for me where I can study the Bible for a living. Just imagine that. A blessing that I cannot count with my hands, yet on a daily basis I find myself complaining before the Lord in my prayers and waking up at 3 o'clock in the, in the morning where it defies my theology of the omnipotence of God and sit there worrying about my life. Here, that's the state of my own spiritual affairs. And what scripture simply says is, what the Lord will judge you by are not your accomplishments or your desire for accomplishments, but simply, are you being faithful to the place, to the people, to the tasks the Lord has called you to? And he says, 
the one who would determine whether you've done well. When we ask the question, who will decide when one has been trustworthy or not? He says, it's not going to be others like the church. Well, for Paul, the others were the church. And they already prejudged him in saying, he doesn't look good on the outside. He doesn't speak well enough. So therefore, he's not going to be worthy of our attention. He says, it's not them. Nor is it going to be about self, as he says. In a surprising statement, he says, in fact, I don't even judge myself. There are a lot of reasons why my, Paul might say things like this, which seems almost flippant. But part of that is, he doesn't even know himself well. We are delusional people, friends. Forgive me for using such strong words. But we're often elevating who we are or lowering who we are, and we often do not have the even keel to understand even ourselves well. It's like my child at the earlier illustration of being able to say, I awesome, which is completely delusional, even if it's my own child. Unfortunately, cute for a three and a half year old, not so cute for a 40 year old who shares with other people how awesome they are, but just in a more sophisticated way. In a way, done in such a way where every time we tell a story about our experience, it sounds that much better the second time we tell it. Story only gets better and better. Why? We don't even know ourselves very well. And the way we view ourselves is determined by our physical factors, how we feel emotionally, how much we want to impress other people, that we cannot even speak honestly about who we are and what we have been in front of others, or for that matter, even before God. Thus Paul says, what others say, they're good or bad, do not determine who I am. What I say about who I am, good or bad, do not determine who I am. The only one who can make this judgment, as chapter 4, verse 5 says, it is the Lord who judges. It is the Lord who judges. What matters to Paul is what his master thinks. And the only judgment that counts is the final one. There's a famous uh, New Testament scholar named D.A. Carson, who's very well known, but his father, Tom, was not very well known. Now, part of this resonates with me because my father is also a pastor, not because his son's famous, because I'm not. In fact, when I was in college, Pastor Sam, who also went to UCLA, I went to UCLA as well, he and I are the same age, but he was famous. No time for me, right? Because I was unfamous. And only now we become close friends, only because now we're at some even scale. At, when you age, you don't care about that as much. But in college, I know he didn't think much of me. You can tell him that. And can you delete this from the video? <laughs> but D.A. Carson, who thinks about his dad, wrote a book called The Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor and says about says this about his dad who passed away without achieving the kind of attention and accolades from the world. And he tells us something about what we should be seeking when he says, when he died, that is his father, when Tom died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, television, no mention in parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But 
on the other side, all the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man. After all, he was the most ordinary pastor, but because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him whom he longed to hear saying, quote, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If that resonates with you, you're echoing the heart murmurs of Paul, who's trying to remind us that at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, a hundred years from now, you and I will be forgotten in the wind. But yet the Lord never forgets. And as we stand before God, our hope is that we be found trustworthy and faithful. Because what our desire is not the accolades and acceptance of the world. Our desire is the accolades and acceptance of our Lord. Days coming, friends, quickly around the corner, where the world's tussle with our belief will continue to be stretching us beyond our ability. Where the world demands that we think according to the world. And here I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of God, beloved of Christ, that indeed our commendation we ought to desire is the voice of our Lord who says, well done, good and faithful servant. And what he sees you by is your faithfulness. Friends, this is not a rant against success. This is not a praise of mediocrity by any means. I would never do that in Orange County in particular. Excellence should be pursued in our daily lives. But know this, Christian excellence is not determined by the number of trophies, whether earned or participation. They seem to do that a lot nowadays, right? Trophies on our walls or by a panel of judges who determine your and my worth. This is where I think the words of Francis Chan is very appropriate for our generation when he says, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. That is, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. If I can only honestly right now share with you all the things daily I spend my energy as well as my emotions on that have no eternal consequences. Friends, what are you succeeding in? I want to leave with this, these words where we want to be able to say that a successful quote-unquote Christian does not involve extraordinary feats or exceptional accomplishments. Rather, a successful Christian is someone who understands that he or she is not independent, but lives in utter dependence upon the Lord. I would like to say a successful Christian is someone who pleases the Lord by being faithful to him in all things, not in moments and times where others see and recognize, but in, even in the moment of silence and darkness that our minds and emotions and our actions are faithful to the Lord. A successful Christian is someone who knows that his or her standing is not determined by others, no matter what they say, not just the bad, but also the good, but by the master in heaven who sees and hears all things through the lens of the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
a successful Christian does not look for quantifiable evidence of accomplishments. Letters behind one's name, titles, zeros account in the bank accounts, square footage of the home, the area in which one lives, but qualitative evidence of change in heart and desires that are elevated to focus upon the Lord. In a nutshell, a successful Christian is someone who is a normal, ordinary Christian. You know, the way I talk about these things sometimes can sound extraordinary to someone. To give you one last uh, analogy, someone like me who doesn't exercise very much and who sits for a living, when someone says, it's good for your health to run at least three times a week, half an hour each time, it sounds extraordinary. It sounds extraordinary because I just don't do it. So when we say something like, you should pray every day, to many, it sounds extraordinary. What? What are you speaking of? When you say, you should read the Bible every single day, you say, oh, how is that even possible? Or when you say, you should think about the Lord. Oh, I don't know how that's even humanly doable, people say. We're at a time where the ordinary things seem extraordinary. Friends, what the Lord desires from you are not extraordinary things, but simply that you as his sons and daughters do the ordinary things. That you become the ordinary sons and daughters of God, doing the things that the Lord desires and expects you to do to please him and to honor him. And may Crossway Church really exemplify its name that what it seeks as individuals and as a body of Christ is the way of Christ, not the way of self, the way of the cross, not the way of glory. Bring honor to him and that as sons and daughters, until you see him face to face, you may be faithful. May you one day together hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in the little things. Come in and join in your master's happiness. Let's return to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, O Lord, for your blessings in our lives. Thank you, O Lord, for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gives us life, purpose, and meaning. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Crossway, both the young and the old. Won't you, by your spirit, O Lord, disciple them directly? that daily you will teach them, you'll remind them, strengthen them to live their lives for you, that through them and through this church, you may receive all the glory and honor. Help us to become ordinary Christians who are mindful of you daily and every moment, that by it, you may receive our honor and glory. We thank you and pray this in your son's name. Amen.